Roll tide, everybody, and welcome to Bama Talk. I'm Steve Sample, and we're going to spend the next half hour or so talking about Alabama football because that's what we do up in here. So kick back while we kick off with a look back at some of Bama's favorite sons, the guys that were under center in the biggest games on the biggest stages and played such an important part in helping Bama write her name in crimson flame. While it's true we've never had a quarterback win a Heisman Trophy, it's also true that Bama quarterbacks all the, over the last century have helped build a legacy that's the envy of more schools than would ever admit it, and you know who you are. Alabama quarterbacks, of course, have played a crucial part in winning 14, uh, yes, that's 14, national championships, 22 SEC championships, and 33 bowl games. And while we're talking about bowl games, the Crimson Tide is the only team to have won all four major traditional bowls, the Rose, Sugar, Cotton, and Orange, at least twice, and you don't do that without stars in the huddle. Pooley Hubert started on the 1925 team that went undefeated in the regular season, then shocked the football world by beating Washington 20-19 in the Rose Bowl. The Tide was the first Southern team to ever play in the Rose Bowl, and that win became the inspiration behind the lyrics in Alabama that say, remember the Rose Bowl will win then, and your Dixie's football pride, Crimson Tide. Riley Smith was a quarterback on the 34 team and an All-American, and get this, he also won the Jacobs Award, which is given to the SEC's best blocker each year. He threw a lot of passes to future NFL Hall of Famer Don Hudson, and the other end on that team was a guy from Fordyce, Arkansas named Paul Bryant. Harry Gilmer made the jump pass famous as an All-American in 1945 on a team they call the War Babies, then starred with the Washington Redskins and Detroit Lions, and later spent many years as a scout in the league. Bart Starr was actually a backup for most of his career at Alabama, but wound up being drafted by the Green Bay Packers, where he led them to wins in the first two Super Bowls and was MVP in both of those games. Pat Trammell led Bama to its first national championship under Coach Bryant in 61, he wasn't fast and didn't have a great arm, but he was a great leader on a great team. When he died of cancer in 1968, Coach Bryant said it was the saddest day of his life. Joe Namath migrated from Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania, and inherited the quarterback position from Pat Trammell in 1962, along with that famous number 12 jersey. Coach Bryant said many times Namath was the best athlete he ever coached. I was lucky enough to see him play three times before he blew that knee out against North Carolina State in 1964, and I'm convinced the only reason he wasn't our first Heisman winner was that knee injury. But it didn't stop the New York Jets from outbidding the St. Louis Cardinals and signing Joe for $427,000, by far the largest contract ever signed at that time. Joe led the Jets to that famous win over the Colts in Super Bowl III and was named MVP in the game, making it three years in a row a Bama quarterback had won that award. I've always thought if he'd played on two healthy knees, he'd own the NFL record book. Kenny Stabler, the snake, another great athlete. He was deadly accurate as a passer, and a lot of people forget that he was also a great option quarterback. Snake led the 66 team to another undefeated season that included a come-from-behind 11-10 win in the rain at Tennessee and a huge 34-7 win over Nebraska in the Sugar Bowl. And in one of the all-time injustices ever perpetrated in sports, the Tide was denied a national championship that year when the Poles gave it to Notre Dame and Michigan State after they played to a 10-10 tie. 
Scott Hunter was a pro-style passer that had a great game against Ole Miss in the first regular season broadcast of a college football game in prime time in 1969, a 33-32 win in which he actually had more passing yards than Archie Manning, who got all the pub that night. Terry Davis was at Bama's first wishbone quarterback, and he was so quick he could turn out the lights and be in the bed before the room got dark. He was from Bogalusa, Louisiana, and he led the tide to that famous win over Southern Cal in the 71 season opener in Los Angeles when we unveiled the wishbone. Richard Todd, Stedman Sheely, and Jeff Rutledge helped make Bama the team of the 70s. Walter Lewis, Gary Hollingsworth, and David Smith, a walk-on, had great games in the 80s. Jay Barker won 35 games as a starter. Andrew Zhao had the game of a lifetime against Auburn in a 31-7 win down there in 01. Brody Croyle made the cover of Sports Illustrated after a huge win over Florida in 2005. John Parker Wilson, Greg McElroy, A.J. McCarron, they've all helped put Bama back to where we want it to be and where we know it ought to be. These are just some of the names that stand out in our storied football history, and I'm glad to say another one of those names belongs to a guy that's been generous enough with his time to be with us today. He started for four years in high school, was a 6A player of the year as a senior, named the Birmingham News All-Metro Team, the Tuscaloosa News Sweet 16, and the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Super Southern 100. He made freshman All-SEC team, was on the SEC All-Academic Team four times, and was a team captain for two years. Tyler Watts, it's great to have you with us. Thanks for coming by. I appreciate y'all having me. What are you up to these days? Selling insurance. I think that every former athlete, you either go into pharmaceuticals or you start selling insurance. And I have a nationwide agency here in Birmingham. Well, if people want to get in touch with you, how do they go? But what's the best way to do that? Well, I think everybody today Googles just about everything. You can Google my name and it should pop up. But I'm in Vestavia Hills, Alabama. My phone number is 822-5477. You know, Tyler, I started paying attention to recruiting a long time before you came along but your recruitment was the first one i ever remember that lasted four years because it started when you were in the ninth grade at pelham high school you know back then you started hearing about most kids when they were seniors or maybe their junior year what was it like to start hearing from major d1 schools as a high school freshman well i was fortunate enough that uh um, my high school football coach, Ronnie Gill, in my first two years at Pelham High School, his son was an athletic trainer at the Old Health South and had attended Auburn and was actually really uh, instrumental in getting me into that the whole recruiting scene. He had actually they had contacted uh, Alabama and Auburn one weekend. This is kind of interesting story. I don't think a lot of people know about it. Alabama was paying, playing Tennessee in Birmingham. They used to play all the big games there in Legion Field. Uh, in fact, it was the year, unfortunately, that uh, Peyton Manning led the band against 95. Alabama. Yeah, and Auburn was playing Florida that morning in Jordan Hare. Well, they had contacted Alabama, and Alabama had said, "Well, we, we re- it's an away game. We don't have enough seats. Uh, we don't have enough tickets for him to to come to this game." And I was just a sophomore at the time. Uh, played Vestavia Hills the night before. I thrown for over 400 yards. And anyway, that week earlier, they said, well, all right, Alabama, if you don't want Tyler to come, then they contacted Auburn. Auburn said, Terry Bowden was down there at the time. He said, bring him on. Bring him and whoever else wants to come. So we loaded up uh, and uh, went down there. But as soon as Alabama found out that I was going to Auburn to watch the Florida game, miraculously, they came up with another three tickets for me and my my family uh, to go watch the the Tennessee game that night. So 5.30 a.m., we load up. Go down to Auburn, watch a, a half or three quarters of the Auburn Florida game. Electric atmosphere. Uh, growing up in Alabama, family was kind of hard not to pull for Florida, 
but uh, I, I sat there and watched very respectfully. I wouldn't and, have fought and, that and enjoyed, very hard either. <laughs> enjoyed the game as much as possible. And then left there, drove back to Birmingham, and and watched the the six forty five kickoff versus Tennessee, and that's really where my hatred for Tennessee started. With Peyton up on well, that well, ladder, yeah, directing the band, forty one to fourteen will do that to you. I hadn't uh, I hadn't forgotten about that one either. Maybe we'll get a chance to talk to him someday <laughs> when he's really old and can't hit back. You know, I I know when I was growing up, I I really never considered going anywhere but Bam. Of course, I wasn't going to play football, but. Um, you, you read about kids that are being recruited and the things that are important to them and, uh, you know, playing time. You don't hear as much about growing up a fan of a particular school these days as you used to. Uh, those kinds of things, loyalty factors. What were the main things over those those last few years as you approached college that led you to sign with Bama? And, and when, did you, when did you come to grips with when you knew that's what you were going to do, regardless of what was going to go on until signing day. Well, you know, similar to how I remember Peyton Manning leading the band against Alabama that night and where I was sitting in Jordan Hare that morning, uh, my first two college football games as a recruit. I also remember the night that I got a call from Mike Dubos, who was then the head coach at Alabama, saying, regardless of whether you get injured or not, which was a big deal. I wasn't thinking about it, but that was a huge deal for my dad. You know, whether you get injured or, or stay healthy, you have a scholarship here to Alabama. And that's a vivid memory. Uh, it was an exciting night for me. And I, I remember having to kind of subdue that because, you know, we still had school. We still had a, basically a football season and a half to, to play in high school, and I had to be committed to that. But it was a huge relief of knowing that that part was over. And it was actually my dad that said, we need to slow down and, you know, kind of enjoy this a little bit. Don't rush because a lot yeah, can change. Sure. And, uh, you know, hindsight, I probably – should have listened to him even more, uh, just to experience the whole recruiting process. Of course, it's it's so much different now than what it was, you know, ten fifteen years ago, and will probably different be different five years from now than what it is now. But it's it is so big right now with nationally and keeping up with what these guys are doing. Um, but I didn't enjoy it. I wanted to get it over with. I wanted to go ahead and commit, and I committed after the second game of my senior year of high school, and was very glad to have that part over because I did not enjoy the phone calls and the magazines and everybody constantly calling just to see if anything had changed in your life. You know, I was just getting ready to ask you what were the best and worst things about going through that process. I, I can imagine uh, even back then when the media pressure and the phone calls were probably not as many that it can get pretty hectic. It can. And, and I think that the focus on recruiting, it used to be really didn't, in, it, you didn't enter it until your senior year. That's when you really started getting recruiting by college coaches. Now they start recruiting when you're sophomore. Oh, we just got our first commitment uh for the 2014 class. Yeah, so, so it's changed. And, and, and on the flip side, a player is sitting there saying, all right, they have 25 scholarships that they can give out. If I don't jump on board now, are they going to have a spot for me later on if I wait too long? And unless you're one of those five-star studs, uh, if you get that offer and you find the right fit for you, you, you pretty much have to jump on it then. But I think the players also realize that they're wanting to play for championships and also they're eager to get on board early and start helping the recruiting process as well. You you know, you redshirted as a true freshman. I believe it was in 98. Then you started getting some playing time in 99. In fact, you started against Southern Miss in LSU that year. I did. Andrews actually got hurt, twisted his ankle versus Tennessee, and I got beat up pretty good in that game. They stuck Andrew back in to finish it out, but I got my next two starts, uh, you know, the next weeks. Well, the game I remember most in 99 and I attended was down at Auburn when you came in in the second half and led us to a 28-15 win. Sean Alexander had a great night that night. What in the world is it like to run out there in that atmosphere 
as a redshirt freshman and quarterback Alabama to a win over our biggest local rival. Yeah. Well, we're 13 years removed now. Is, is that right? I mean, that was back in 99. So yep. I, I can tell the story however I choose to remember it now. <laughs> it was awfully exciting. And I remember uh, I had not actually played the week before versus Mississippi State. And, and, and that was directly after as you mentioned earlier, starting against uh, Southern Miss, who was ranked 24 or so in the country at that time, we had beat them soundly, beat LSU in, at home. So we had one loss, or excuse me, two losses going into that Mississippi State game. And back then, Mississippi State was still undefeated. Oh, that was a tough game. And, it was a uh, night game that at Bryant Denny. It was a 19-7 right. to 7 win. It was to choose the winner of that game would win the SEC West, basically, or at least be in the driver's seat. Yeah. Uh, so we won that game, but I did not play a lick and was awfully frustrated about it. I thought that I'd played well enough the prior two weeks to, to get some at, snaps. at least get a few snaps if if things weren't going well, and I didn't think they were going that particularly well. But, you know, I'm not a coach. I'm just a player. Uh, but I was frustrated about it, and I let my frustrations be known in private to the coach, to the coaches, to my offensive coordinator. And he listened, and uh, when the opportunity arose once again, I was made sure that I prepared myself during Auburn. Uh, the Auburn week and went down there didn't play a lick in the first half and we were struggling uh, I can't remember if we were behind or I think we yeah, were actually, behind I think at we were behind the half but we had the game really turned on a safety we well you're got... getting ahead of me now you're getting ahead of me oh, okay. I'm, I'm trying to take okay. you through step by step uh so I get the call at, at halftime they say we're gonna go with you and and there was just like a huge relief uh, I was like all right I'm, I'm glad that I, I did everything that I did in the prior week I'm ready to play it's not like Tennessee where I'm not focused, I'm not prepared. And I remember walking out of the tunnel there, uh, coming out to the second half, and, I I mean, I got sick as a dog in that tunnel. And I almost threw up everything I'd eaten 18 hours before a pregame meal. Uh, It was just that nervous of, oh, my goodness, this is actually going to happen. You know, uh, this game that I've watched for the last however many years, I'm finally about to get an opportunity to play in it. And we went out there, and, and yeah, uh, you know, we drove the length of the field on the op- on the opening possession of the second half, went forward on fourth down in about two or three, uh, did not get in. And this is the big argument that, well, it's not a big argument because the defensive guys would kick my rear end today like they would back then if I got in too heat of an argument. But this is the discussion that we always have. If Who really turned that game? Was it them getting the safety or, or us setting them up? for the safety by not getting it on fourth and goal. I think Kendall Moorhead was in on that. Kendall Moorhead and uh, uh, Cornelius Griffin was a big defensive lineman that we had at the time. And wound up playing for the Giants That's right. That's right. Uh, We had a lot of good players on that defensive side, and uh, they were able to to sack men leered in the the end zone and and get the safety, and that really is what turned that ball game because we got the ball back. Well, it flipped uh, the field, yeah. but you guys had to take advantage of it. But it was a huge transition just because we finally started clicking in the second half. And and it was. It was a lot of running uh, behind Griff, Red, Griff Redmill and Chris Samuels on the left side, Paul Hogan at center. And uh, and we started moving the ball with Sean. And they just absolutely could not start. We started wearing them down, gave our defense an opportunity to rest, and they, they shut them out in the second half as well. Uh, that was a great night. I remember it very clearly. You know, two other games in that 99 season stand out to me, and they were both against Florida. We beat them at the Swamp 40-39 to in an overtime game that was just a classic 
and Chris Samuels and Sean Alexander again had great games. And then we beat them again in the SEC championship game, 34-7. to And folks, if you have access to the video of that game, you need to check out Tyler's block on Freddie Millen's 77-yard TD run. Uh, it had to be an awesome thing beating a Spurrier coach Florida team twice in one year back then because they were in the midst of that little run they had for a four years, and they were kind of the big deal back then. Uh, but uh, we uh, we kind of took things over that night. You know, and I may or, be, may or may not be right about this, but I want to say they were two or number two or three when we played them down in Florida and got the upset. And, you know, in your opening, you mentioned that, that uh, Auburn game in 2001 might have been Andrew's best game. It probably was that Florida game. He was unbelievable in in that Florida game that first year. It was his, his first time to go back home. You know, he's from Lake Butler, Florida. It was his oppor- first opportunity to go back home and play in front of his home family, his home uh, state, and against a bunch of players that he played against in high school. And he had an outstanding game uh, in that victory. But then turning around the SEC championship, by that time, we were going every other series. I don't think either one of us liked it, but things were clicking, and we weren't about to jinx it. And uh, after the first couple of possessions, I think they went down and scored first, and then uh, we threw an interception. That would be me through an interception. And, uh, but we didn't give up points off of it. And after that, as you mentioned, it was just a flow. And I remember we were leading at halftime, but I can remember everybody going into the halftime and, and just being so frustrated with themselves about the fact that we weren't beating them worse than we were because we were wearing them out on the field. It's just the scoreboard didn't indicate it. And everybody was looking around at each other going, y'all, we just got to calm down. We got to calm down, play within ourselves, and we are going to wear this team out. And we did exactly that. Oh, that that team had a real chemistry that year. I remember that. Uh, Now, which is why 2000 was was kind of a jolt, because I remember making the trip out to – uh, Los Angeles to see the game against UCLA and Freddie starts it out with that great punt return. In fact, we were sitting in the end zone. He, I thought he was going to run up in the stands and throw me the ball there for a minute. And that had to have been a tough year, 2000, with the team uh, struggling a little bit. And then you wind up with a torn ACL. Mike Dubose uh, certainly didn't have his best year that year, and the coaching staff didn't seem like it was in much of a groove. What do you hang on to in a year like that? What What's the thing that year that that you that you hung on to as an, as an individual and as a team. Well, it, I'm, I'm not going to lie to you. It, it's I think you're searching and looking for something to hold on to, yeah. and unfortunately, we never found that. Uh, we kept uh, thinking if we could just get a couple of wins, we could get things back in the groove and get going again. But it started unraveling, and uh, we were all searching and looking for that that leadership that we had had in the prior years, and. Uh, just waiting for somebody else to step up and make a play and be that leader as opposed to saying, I'm going to do it. And it, it, it was frustrating because it was a lot of confusion, a lot of confusion. In that and there were some to, good guys on that there team. Were, there were. There was no reason that we should have had a 3-8 and eight season with the talent that we had. We were too talented to have that. It's just that shows how things can fall apart uh, extremely quick. Chemistry if, if, is if so important. If it's not all there. Because what was different between that team and the, and the team in 2001? Not a whole lot. Uh, but it was definitely two different scenarios, two different, uh, uh, you know, records. And uh, but it, it was awfully frustrating for us as we're sitting there looking for something to hold on to and looking for something to play for, and it just just never could find it. And uh, but it was good that the transition happened when it did. You know, Fran comes in in 2001 and seemed to get things back on course at least for a while. Now his style and approach were definitely different from. Uh, what we'd seen the three or four years previous to that. What was that transition like as a player? I can remember he put a lot more emphasis on the uh, strength and conditioning program, which which produced some results. I can remember that. 
reading about players being able to bench more and that kind of thing. What was what was that? What's that transition like? Do you have to come in and learn all your uh, verbiage over well, the yeah, names of? Yeah, obviously the the football side of it's going to be completely different with the the schematics of it and the terminology that you're having to learn. Uh, one of the biggest things, though, I think Coach Fran did an excellent job at was taking a fragmented team offensive, defensive, special teams, even different factions within those units, and being able to pull them together. I mean, he was a tremendous team-builder type of coach. Uh, He really got everybody at least headed in the right direction instead of pulling against each other, blaming each other for for things that didn't go well. And uh, that that was a little bit different. The atmosphere that he set was was tremendously different. And and those are the type of things that a lot of people don't get an opportunity to see is the culture that these – these coaches build and their players flourish in it or or they they don't uh, and successful programs have those type of cultures where teammates know exactly what's expected of them they know what what the goal of the team is what's it, the goal of, of of their being able to con- contribute and, and they're, and they're able to do command. It. there is and, and i guess that's the, you know the structure that's there is is was incredibly different and it was refreshing to see you know most athletes they want discipline and they want structure because they want to know where they stand they want to know what's expected of them and coach Fran did an excellent job of providing both of those and as a result we were able to then use the skills and the talents that we had to be successful out on the field oh that 2000 team 2002 team had some great players on it and did a lot of good things. Uh, and it seemed like, again, it was heading in a very positive direction. Uh, that 34-13 to win in Knoxville was awful sweet, and you played a big part in that one. Uh, that win stopped a streak they'd been on, and there's still a lot of pictures around of you scoring on that bunch. Uh, it had to feel awfully good walking out of that place with the right team on top again. Well, well after seven years, ever since uh, that oh. fateful night when I was a recruit, we had been in a dry spell versus Tennessee, and – uh, you know, growing up, I, d- I didn't realize the hatred and, and the rivalry. I should say that's probably a better word against Tennessee because you you mentioned Gary Hollingsworth and uh, Jeff Smith and those guys. Those were my those were my quarterbacks that I watched. The, the, those were the guys I, I grew up watching, and I never saw Alabama lose to Tennessee, never. And I didn't realize what the big deal was. Um, and then when we finally, you know, lost and uh, that was ended a ten year streak where they had not won. I mean, they had tied a game, but they had not won. And then they went on a 7-0 run against us. That was a big deal for, for us because there were several classes ahead of me that had never had the opportunity to beat Tennessee, and they talked about it a lot. And it, and it, it definitely meant something to us. Um, and I'm glad that the guys that are going through right now have kind of lost reality of what that rivalry is as well. And I hope they continue to not really understand and have an appreciation for it. You know, the, the guys in the sports media, especially the talking heads, and uh, I guess I'm one of them now, and the sports writers like to talk about this this rivalry or that rivalry being relevant and all that. I don't care what these guys say. I don't care what their take is. Alabama and Tennessee, historically, traditionally, is the biggest rivalry in the South, and that game so many years over the years and decades uh, had a lot to do with who won the SEC and who wound up in a major bowl game at the end of the season. And the fact that one one of the teams or the other may uh, be in a slump or in a, in a little bit of a down period for a while has got nothing to do with diminishing uh, the intensity of that rivalry. You know, being a quarterback at Alabama is an awfully special thing. Everybody knows your name and your number. 
you become part of that group of guys I mentioned earlier that become folk heroes. The, the players people don't forget, the players that become legendary parts of this legacy, unlike any other anywhere, and it's kind of like being Miss America. Once you're one of them, you'll always be known and remembered for it. Uh, it's got to be an amazing thing to be a quarterback at Alabama. Uh, what's that like even now for you? Well, I'm not going to lie. I love it. I mean, the, the fact that I can go boy. Yeah, I can go back <laughs> and remember the good ones and kind of forget about yeah. the bad games. Uh, but it is exciting because there's a lot of functions that I get an opportunity to go and participate in. And, and I'll meet guys like Terry Davis. And I have nothing in common with him in life whatsoever. Other than? Other than the fact that we both played quarterback at Alabama. And as a result of that, I can have an hour-long conversation with him. You know, it's, what's, it's actually a true fraternity. It's a, it's a thing. It's a club. There are not a lot of members in, but the ones that are members have something in common that's awfully, awfully special. Uh, uh, I, I know you're working with Chris Stewart uh, on Bama's pay-per-view broadcast now, uh, and you guys do the post-game radio show. Uh, I'm always tuned in after the game, so I hope you enjoy it half as much as I do listening to it. I know when I'm driving back from Tuscaloosa, the uh, first thing I do when I get in the car is put the post-game show on and listen to that because I enjoy – hearing what an Alabama quarterback has to say about what he just saw, whether we want, win or lose. You know, I'm interested in, in your take on those things. Um, uh, so that's a lot of fun. What kind of prep do you do for, a, for, for the show or for those pay-per-view broadcasts? <laughs> that's going to get me in trouble right there. Ironically, make something ironically up. And, no, and I'll be, I'll be honest with you, ironically and what's funny is I listen to a lot of talk radio as well. Um, I read some articles, but it at least gives me an idea of what's relevant out there and what people are interested in and what their thoughts are. And then I feed off of it, and that gives me things to look at during the course of a game. And I can, at that point, you know, obviously make my own uh, determinations, evaluations, and, and uh, mind up about things that I see. But the, the basic gist of it is just to simply report on what happens during the game. I'm, I'm not an expert on any of this. I don't know if anybody is because you're pre- trying to predict and, and uh, try to determine what's going to happen with a bunch of 18 to 22 year olds. And a lot can happen. You know, there it, it's awfully difficult, but I, a lot of my prep simply comes from listening to the fan base call in and, and talk on these radio shows and, and, and discuss things that, that they find important and find interesting. You know, I, I've often thought too, it must be a lot of fun because of your background and your knowledge and, uh, going through being coached and trained up by these professional college football coaches that you can sit up there and you recognize formations, you recognize uh, the things we hear a lot about, you know, in terms of the X's and O's, which I always find very interesting. Maybe some people don't, but I do. Uh, strong side, weak side, How you know, whether we've got three wides in or uh, two back formation. Well, I know one of the things we do, like, for instance, Gary Danielson talks about uh, – with the multiple tight ends and the way we use them is actually very complex. And a lot of people think we have a simple offense because it's sort of a pro style, uh, generally one back offense. But he was saying that it's, it's actually pretty complex and pretty sophisticated. So when you're, uh, do you ever, uh, have any contact with the coaches, for instance, or is there things that as the season goes by, you start recognizing things and it's easier for you, especially with your background to, to maybe uh, be able to anticipate offensively what's coming. You know, I was talking with a former offensive lineman who played under Saban uh, here in the last couple of years, has now graduated. And as complex as we sometimes talk about the game being personnel, it's all about personnel matchups, which is 
kind of the difficulties of the, of the scenario that you were mentioning. When you have that personnel grouping in with the two backs, what are they going to do? Are they going to run it with the power? Are they going to load them in there? Or are they going to spread them out and throw it? Because they can do it with both both ways. So it's really about personnel issues and how you match up against it because it makes you unpredictable with what you're about to expect. But in, in talking to this former offensive lineman, we were discussing a lot of these different things. And football is really a simple game. You run the ball where they're not. You uh, throw the ball where they're not. And the complexity is created when trying to get those scenarios in play, trying to create those mismatches. Uh, and recognizing when defenses are trying to, to yeah, disguise because, I mean, where they are. All right, you can't stop everything. If they're here, you run there. If they're there, you run here. You know, and, and his, his uh, whole world revolved around five guys on the line, and it was simple of, I want to have a point of attack where there's three of us blocking two of you. And that really is the simplicity of, of the game. It's, it's really not any more complicated than that. And on the defensive side, it's about recognizing the play, reacting to it, and wrapping up and tackling. It's, it's not a compli- complicated game. It's just we like to think it is, and, and we sometimes make it more complicated than it should be. Well, you know, Coach Saban has really got it going on these days. Uh, as a former player, what's it like to see us having so much success at such a high level and what are things about the program that really stand out to you right now? You know, it, it's funny. There's so many times I'm sitting up there in the press box, and it seems like every other week there's some team from the 60s or 70s getting recognized for, for winning a national championship. Yeah, and, we do a lot of that. And uh, <laughs> I get jealous because during my tenure, it was a pretty rough time, and, and all we ever came away with was an SEC title, which was a pretty doggone good accomplishment. But let's stop here for just a second and – Think about what you just said. All we did I know, was that's exactly right. See, at Alabama, average is a down year. Yeah, I had two ten win seasons, and, and it was a, a and rough everybody's time walking around with their lips poked out. Uh, but I'm I'm watching those, and and I joke around the guys that play in the seventies. I'm and, and the fans even that grew up during that that decade that are always talking about. They didn't know what it was like to lose. And I'm saying I'm finally getting an opportunity to experience what y'all felt. There in the seventies, it was and, something and like what you experienced before coming out that Auburn tunnel. That's, that's what it is right now. Sick. Yeah, that's what it is. You <laughs> just there's not a time that you those days of wondering, all right, how can we win this game? Is the opposing quarterback going to play or not? Because that's going to determine whether we can win. Those days are over. Now it is you walk into the stadium fully expecting we're going to win the football game. Or are we going to look good doing and it? And it's going to be a, a miracle if the other team wins. And that's just the attitude now. And is it confidence? Absolutely. It's it's well-deserved. Uh, is it an arrogance? Yeah, maybe with some people. Maybe. You know, I, I don't really think so because I'm, well, I don't have anything to do. Well, there's a thin line between confidence and arrogance. Yeah, but I don't have a part of it, so I can feel as confident as I want to, but I don't have a direct uh, input on the outcome of the game. Well, you know, one thing I've always felt, uh, being an Alabama graduate and Alabama fan, growing up in Tuscaloosa and going on an awful lot of games, is one thing I'm proud of is that when Alabama wins big games, we don't act like it's never happened before. I've never seen an Alabama crowd tear down a goalpost. And the reason for that is we expect to win. Even when we're having years that maybe we're a little off our game, we expect to win. And when we win big games, we're happy, we celebrate, but we know it's not a once-in-a-lifetime deal. It's going to be an ongoing thing. Tyler, I really appreciate you taking time to, to come by today. We could make this show two and a half hours very easy. I'd love to sit here and talk some more, and I hope you'll come back and visit us again sometime. I'd absolutely love to. A couple of things before we line up in the victory formation and take a knee. 
If you're listening on iTunes, be sure and hit that subscribe button because, hey, the downloads are free, which frees up more money to spend on foam fingers and face paint on game day. Don't forget you can also find us on Stitcher, and we're on the web now at bigbrainsmedia.com. We also have a Bama Talk Facebook page that we're having a lot of fun with, so check it out and let us know where you're listening from. Well, the game clock just hit zero, so we're going to head to the locker room. We hope you enjoyed it, and remember, friends don't let friends miss Bama Talk. For Tyler Watts and our engineer producer, Mark Phillips, thanks for listening. Till next time, take care, have a blessed day, and roll tide. <laughs>